Hey everyone, welcome to Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. The fulfillment of the Great Commission and the building of free and virtuous societies are integrally linked. These words are taken from the book Evangelical Catholicism, which argues that at this moment in history, each member of the church is called to live out Christ's command to go and make disciples of all nations. In this episode, we speak with the author of Evangelical Catholicism, George Weigel. Weigel is a distinguished senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and he's the author of numerous books, including Witness to Hope, the authoritative biography of St. John Paul II. Through that evangelical lens, we examine what the church's public policy advocacy should look like with the self-professed Catholics serving in the White House. Ultimately, Weigel contends, the next four years and beyond ought to be about proclaiming gospel truth and fulfilling the Great Commission, not lobbying for policy prescriptions. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die his majesty's good servant at God's first. Thank you very much for joining us today. We're delighted to have George Weigel with us. George, thank you very much for being on the show today. Good to be with you, Patrick. Nice to see you again. So there's a Catholic in the White House. Lots to talk about. And we thought it would be interesting for purposes of today's discussion around the church's witness in, public, in the public square, faithful citizenship and evangelization, to apply the lens of a specific understanding of how the church should engage with modern society. And the lens we wanted to use is the one that you laid out in great detail in your book from 2013 called Evangelical Catholicism. So just for the benefit of our listeners, could you perhaps give us a very quick recap and rundown of the core tenets of evangelical Catholicism? By evangelical Catholicism, uh, Patrick, I mean uh, a Catholic Church that has deeply internalized the intention of Pope John XXIII for the Second Vatican Council, that the Church recover a sense of missionary fervor and evangelical zeal in order to sanctify the world. The Second Vatican Council called the Church back to its original self-understanding as a communion of disciples in mission. And all three words in that description, all three nouns in that description, are important. Christianity, Catholicism, begins with discipleship. It begins with friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with Christ through prayer, the sacraments, and the Word of God in the scriptures. But Catholicism has never understood discipleship as merely Jesus and me, if you will. To become a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be incorporated into his body in the world, which is the church. And that body has the character of a communion. 
in which all of the members of the body interact with each other much as the cells in a living human body interact with each other. That communion of disciples does not live for itself alone, however. It lives in order to share with others the gift it has received of friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ and incorporation into his body, the church. That's the fundamental idea. The next idea is really one of of reading the history of this moment. We are no longer living in Christendom. Christendom is over. And by Christendom, I mean a culture in which the values, the virtues, the mores celebrated in that culture help transmit the Christian faith from one generation to the next. That is obviously not our circumstance. The the dominant signals we get from postmodern culture in this second, uh, third decade, actually, of the 21st century are counterintuitive to the gospel. So the church is being called back to its apostolic origins. We don't live in Christendom times, we live in apostolic times. And this brings us to the third point, which has been stressed by Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, and now Pope Francis, that in this church of the new evangelization, as John Paul II called it, in this church living in apostolic times, every Catholic must understand himself or herself to be a missionary. Missionaries are not just brave people who go to exotic parts of the world to bring the gospel where it's never been proclaimed before. Everybody's a missionary, and every place is mission territory. Your kitchen table is mission territory. Your neighborhood is mission territory. Your workplace is mission territory. Our lives as consumers are mission territory. Our lives as citizens are mission territory. It's all, it's all mission territory. And this is, this is obviously taking some time for, for people to get used to. We're not used to thinking about Catholicism in these evangelical and missionary terms, but it's what we have to wrap our heads around and our hearts around and configure our souls to if we are to meet the challenge of being the friends of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 21st century. So in your book, you use evangelical Catholicism as a blueprint for comprehensive reform of the church in the 21st century, applying it to the papacy, the episcopate, the priesthood, the liturgy. You also use it as a basis for reorienting the church's engagement in the public arena in relation to public policy. So could you speak a little bit more about how evangelical Catholicism is applied in the context of the church's relationship with the state. Part of the challenge of living in apostolic times rather than Christendom times uh, is to recognize that in many respects, the modern state, as it has evolved, particularly over the past 30 or 40 years, is not necessarily friendly to the church, 
and to the church's proclamation, to the truths the church proposes in society. We've got to get used to the idea that we are called first to convert the culture and later through the culture to convert the state to the truths about what makes for human happiness, human flourishing, social concord, social solidarity, many of which uh, our postmodern Western societies, certainly including Canada and the United States, uh, have uh, forgotten. There are so many expressions of this challenge that it's, it, we could spend the rest of our time together just uh, outlining them. But let's take one immediate challenge here in Lent 2021. The United States House of Representatives uh, last week passed something called the Equality Act, which puts gender identification into the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as something protected by law. If this bill were to pass the Senate in its present form and be signed by President Biden, it would require institutions throughout the United States to concede that a confused 14-year-old boy who says, I'm really a girl, is in fact a girl, such that that confused and hurting young man uh, would be treated as a girl in, for example, school sports and in every other aspect of, of public life. And those who decline to accept this will be liable to criminal penalties. What this means is that the United States government is seriously considering in Lent 2021 criminalizing the third chapter of the book of Genesis, criminalizing biblical anthropology. Male and female, he created them. This is very bad news, and it's particularly bad news for people who suffer from, from gender dysphoria, which is a real problem uh, for some people. These are hurting people. Uh, they deserve help, not affirmation of confusion. And those of us who wish to help them should not suffer criminal penalties for saying, no, a boy cannot become a girl. That's the degree of confusion with which we're living in our culture and in, in societies today. And it is ultimately destructive of democracy. The Equality Act here in the United States uh, is a crystalline expression of what Pope Benedict XVI called the dictatorship of relativism the use of coercive state power to impose a relativistic concept of the human condition uh, on all of society. 
So that's just one example of the challenge that we face uh, today. And as you mentioned, this particular piece of legislation has the prospect of ending up on the desk of the chief executive of the United States government, who at this time in history happens to be a Catholic. Against this backdrop, what does the lens of evangelical Catholicism have to teach us? And how do you tie that with some of the insights you've been sharing in some of your recent writings around how the Biden presidency represents an inflection point of sorts for the church in the United States? Patrick, I fully believe that that President Biden understands himself to be a serious Catholic. He's not making this up. Uh, This has been part of his self-presentation and I assume part of his self-understanding for a very long time. And it's clear that he's a man of of some piety whose piety has helped him uh, cope with some extremely distressing situations the death of his first wife and one of his children, Uh, more recently the death of his son who had been the attorney general of of the state of Delaware. I I take him at his word that his faith has, as he understands it, has been uh, a great comfort to him and a way for him to understand uh, these tragedies in his life uh, in a way that does not paralyze him uh, and and render him uh, incapable of, of living past those tragedies. At the same time, it has to be said that President Biden is a badly catechized Catholic uh, who has not connected the dots between his the profession of faith, he makes at Mass every Sunday, and for example, the first principle of Catholic social doctrine, which is that every human person is the bearer of inalienable dignity and value, uh, and thus has an inalienable right to life from conception until natural death. That the president does not recognize this, does not recognize the truth of what we were discussing a moment ago, that uh, the attempt to force a transgender ideology and indeed gender theory and ideology on all of society is a criminalizing of the biblical view of the human person, that he doesn't recognize all that is a huge indictment of the church, frankly, of his bishop in Wilmington, Delaware, for many years, of the pastors who have evidently failed, even if they've tried, uh, to make these matters uh, clear to him. Uh, so where does, where does that leave us? It leaves us, first of all, with the urgent uh, necessity of praying for this man, praying for his deeper conversion to Christ, praying for his deeper understanding of the truths of the faith that he claims to cherish. Secondly, it requires of bishops throughout the United States, uh, and I may say Canada because many of these problems exist uh, in Canada as well, uh, a new resolve 
to confront uh, Catholic political leaders who are manifestly facilitating grave moral evils, whether those be abortion or euthanasia or the facilitating of uh, so-called sex reassignment practices in, in medicine, which are frankly a form of, of the abuse of human persons. The bishops have got to step up on this. What's the inflection point to which you've referred? Well, we now have here in the United States, not only a president of the United States, but the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, numerous influential senators, many governors, many members of the U.S. House of Representatives who are facilitating manifestly grave evils of the sort that I have described and who continue to uh, present themselves for Holy Communion. This is a challenge to the Eucharistic coherence of the church. Uh, it's also a pastoral challenge because these men and women are in deep spiritual trouble. And it's the responsibility of the pastors of the church to reach out to Catholics in deep spiritual trouble and to try to help them understand the nature of that trouble and what they might do to, uh, with the help of grace, uh, find themselves in a fuller communion with the Catholic Church. The blunt fact of the matter is that President Biden and Speaker Pelosi are not in full communion with the Church, and therefore they should not be presenting themselves for Holy Communion at Mass. That needs to be made clear if the sacramental Eucharistic integrity of the church is to be maintained. Or I should say reestablished. So I want to pick up on your comment about the need for clear communication and stepping up on the part of the bishops. Unity is a big buzzword these days in Washington. And admittedly, on Inauguration Day itself, uh, we saw some cracks in the unified voice of the bishops in the U.S., in relation about how to greet the incoming chief executive uh, who professes the Catholic faith. What do you see in the, the blueprint of evangelical Catholicism that can lend itself as a unifying vehicle for the bishops to engage in public policy, to engage with the new president? Well, let's get the empirical situation clarified first. What you saw on Inauguration Day was the president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, Archbishop Gomez of Los Angeles, speaking in a calm, measured uh, way to the new president and speaking in the name of the overwhelming majority of the bishops of the United States. That one or two bishops took to Twitter hardly an evangelical platform, to register their disagreement with what the overwhelming majority of the bishops believe to be the case, that the president is in a serious state of 
impaired communion with the church because of his policy on on the abortion on all of the life issues that that you know three four five of these bishops these bishops there are 350 bishops in the United States bishops conference the three four or five of them you know disagreed publicly does not indicate a lack of unity in the bishops conference it indicates that there are three four five outliers who get inordinate media attention precisely because they are outliers and because they seem more comfortable with the spirit of the present age than than others so that's the empirical situation I believe the bishops of the United States will, at some point this year, uh, issue a statement on the Eucharistic coherence, uh, what it means to be a Eucharistically coherent church, and what that requires of, of, of every bishop uh, in the exercise of his responsibility for sacramental discipline uh, in the church. What the lens of evangelical Catholicism clarifies or sharpens about all this is that there is an enormous task of catechesis of Catholic education to go on today. There was an extremely disturbing study by the Pew Research Center uh, this past year which seemed to indicate, I'm not quite clear as to how well calibrated this was, but seem to indicate that 70% of Catholics in the United States do not really understand the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Now, one would like to see that figure broken down by frequency of mass attendance, etc. But if it's even close to being true, then there's an enormous catechetical and homiletic challenge here that has been intensified by the pandemic. I have been writing for a year now that this uh, situation of Eucharistic fasting into which we have been compelled for public health reasons uh, ought to be the occasion to re-catechize the church on the full meaning of the Eucharist because the question who's coming back when the pandemic is over is going to be largely answered positively by those who believe what the church believes about the Eucharist, that this is the central act of worship of the Catholic Church in which the elements of bread and wine uh, become the body and blood of Christ, which we receive in Holy Communion. This is not simply a social gathering or a weekend recreational activity. It's the representation of the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary and the reception of the body and blood of the risen Lord Jesus. If people understand that, believe that, grasp the, the truly remarkable magnificence of that, then they're likely to come back. If people don't grasp that, then we're uh, going to see a lot more continually empty uh, empty churches even after this uh, pandemic is uh, resolved. So there's a big, big job 
of Catholic education to do. And as I've been insisting for years, this can best be done in homilies, in those Sunday sermons where uh, the people of God need to be fed with the truths of Catholic faith. It is entirely possible with a little imagination and a little hard work to link what is being proclaimed in the scriptures of any given Sunday to fundamental truths of Catholic faith. And that has to be done if the church is going to realize the promise of the new evangelization and if we're going to deal with these serious problems of Catholic incomprehension of the truths of faith. This has a lot of resonance with the chapter in your book of evangelical Catholicism where you talk about the church's engagement on public policy and how the church can no longer view itself as just another special interest or just another player in a political power game. And you called for a renewal of our understanding of ourself as the church as really the mission of both the bishops and the laity. And it sounds like this statement, this forthcoming statement that you're referring to from the bishops is perhaps a first step in a process that's very much aligned uh, with that school of thought. Looking beyond the issuance of that statement and, and keeping within these guardrails of evangelical Catholicism, what do you recommend as the church internalizing and, and acting on in this regard over the next four years? Let's move on from bishops for just a moment here, because uh, when I say that evangelical Catholicism, the Church of the New Evangelization, uh, means that each of us understands ourselves as being having been baptized into a missionary vocation. That includes our lives as citizens. I called out a moment ago the Bishop of Wilmington, Delaware, whom I happen to have known for over 40 years, uh, for his lack of uh, attention to the, the catechesis of his most prominent congregant, now the President of the United States. He's not the only one at fault there. Uh, indeed, right before the inauguration, I received a letter from a lawyer in Delaware who's in the Diocesan Thomas More Society, an association of Catholic lawyers, who wanted that group to write a letter to their fellow member, then the president-elect of the United States, and say, you know, congratulations, we're praying for you, and by the way, there are some real issues here and some real problems here, and we'd like to talk to you about that. And they could not get agreement within their association to do that. So lay people have been every bit as inadequate in their challenge to Catholic public officials as, as some bishops have been. In the book, I also suggest uh, a kind of new, how to put this, a new, the word I'm thinking of is chastity, but that's not, that's not quite the right word, a new uh, self-discipline in, in the church's official public policy witness, whether this is state Catholic conferences or the, or the National Bishops Conference. 
it simply diminishes the credibility of the church's public witness when state Catholic conferences or the national conference suggest that there is a Catholic position on everything. There is not a Catholic position on everything. There are priorities here. This is one of the things that Archbishop Gomez pointed out in his letter to President Biden on Inauguration Day. The life issues have a certain priority. Religious liberty has a certain priority. And on these matters, the church can and should speak with a unanimous voice. What tax rates should be, what the fine details of immigration policy should be, these are not matters on which there ought to be a unified Catholic voice because there can be no unified Catholic voice. These are matters of prudential judgment on which people who all take the social doctrine of the church seriously can, can reasonably disagree. But there really can be no disagreement uh, within a coherent Catholic view of the inalienable right to life from conception until natural death. Uh, there cannot be disagreement within a coherent Catholic view uh, of religious freedom. Uh, and I would say there has to be a unanimous Catholic voice in rejecting this appeal to gender ideology and its attempt to criminalize the uh, biblical Christian and Catholic view uh, of the human person. We are not simply bundles of desires, morally equivalent desires, the satisfaction of which is the primary purpose of government. That is a desperate dumbing down of the meaning of human life and, and the capacities uh, of the human person, and, and we have to resist that. A few questions for you, continuing with this theme of using evangelical Catholicism and looking ahead to the next four years in terms of the church's engagement on public policy and in the public square. Interested to hear your thoughts on comparisons and contrasts that you see between this moment in time in the history of the U.S. church, in the history of the United States, with a Catholic in the White House, and the last time this happened in the 1960s uh, under President John F. Kennedy, different political and cultural climates. Certainly a major point of contrast is during President Kennedy's time in office, Vatican II was still ongoing and the teachings and the directions of the council had yet to emerge. When you juxtapose the two Catholic presidencies, recognizing that the new one is very much in its infancy, what are some of the, the lessons and insights that you think we can tease out? I'm not sure there are a lot of them, Patrick. The Kennedy presidency uh, unfolded in a wholly different, radically different cultural moment in the history of the United States. Anyone who had said in 1962 that a boy in a public school who declares himself to be a girl is to be treated like a girl in that public school would have been sent for some psychiatric help. Frankly, that's exactly what would have happened. I mean, this person would have been 
the person who, who said we should treat these people that way, these confused people that way, would have been thought deeply disturbed themselves. Uh, so there's really no comparison between uh, then and now. I mean, the Catholics could take a prominent role in the civil rights movement in the United States during the Kennedy years because we were agreed with, Catholics were agreed with the, uh, on, on the fact that there is, a, there, is a, there is a human nature, that it's not definable in racial terms, that men and women share the same human nature, even though they embody and express that human nature differently. But that's not the case today. Uh, the notion that there is such a thing as human nature is precisely what is at issue in a host of uh, matters of which this transgender business is simply the most uh, dramatic. The United States was also a country with a much more stable political environment uh, in those uh, years. And it was a country in which there could still be great public debates. It was a world without Twitter. It was a world without Instagram and Facebook and all of these things which, whatever their alleged benefits, have, have seriously dumbed down the public conversation about serious issues. So I'm not sure we can take any real lessons from the brief presidency of, of John F. Kennedy. On, on the question of, of Vatican II and all of this, I wrote a column shortly before the election in November in which I said, is Joe Biden, I asked the question, is Joe Biden really a preconciliar Catholic? And I think in many respects he is. His Catholicism is a kind of ethnic or familial marker more than it's a question of deep conversion to Christ and well-understood adherence to the tenets of the creed and the catechism. When Joe Biden says he's tired of hearing people question his Catholicism and he's going to shove his rosary down their throats, he sounds like a character out of the novel The Last Hurrah about, you know, mid-20th century Boston Irish Catholicism. He doesn't sound, that's not a Vatican II Catholicism. I mean, I have to hope that this man who is, as I say, sincere in his personal piety, uh, eventually comes to understand uh, the truths of Catholic faith that he seems by his public actions uh, to deny. There's not a lot of learnings to be transferred from the Kennedy era to the Biden era because the, the cult, politics is always downstream from culture. Politics is always an expression of culture. And the cultural situation has changed so dramatically, not least in, in the last, say, 10 years, uh, as to make any uh, useful comparison very, very difficult. All fair points. Fair enough. I, I want to take one brief additional step back looking into the past as we cast our glance forward as well over, uh, for the next four years under the Biden presidency. I'd like to hear your thoughts on 
again, using evangelical Catholicism perhaps as a yardstick of measurement here, how do you think the church in the United States fared in its public policy advocacy under the most recent presidency, under the Trump administration? I think it's important to recognize that official Catholicism in the United States, if you will, the Bishops' Conference, simply does not have a lot of throw weight in American politics. There's, there are great illusions about this, not least among the staff of the Bishops' Conference. I have lived in Washington since 1984. I have some idea of how this town works. And the bishops have, the bishops' conference, official Catholicism, has punching power, throw weight, on a narrow band of issues. The life issues, religious liberty issues, occasionally on questions of governmental support for Catholic schools, perhaps on some aspects of, of immigration policy. But the fact that 13 Catholics in the United States Senate last week voted against legal protection for infants who survive abortions tells you something about the throw weight of official Catholicism in our public life. It is far more important going forward, it seems to me, while maintaining a clear public voice on these priority issues, to recognize that the fundamental challenge here is one of the conversion of culture. We are not going to get a better legal and political situation until we get a better moral cultural situation. That's the sweet spot for the church, or at least it should be. And we need to take much more seriously uh, the effective catechesis of our own people so that they, the lay Catholics, can be the ones who hold public officials accountable to uh, the deep moral truths that, that the church is one of the bearers of in society, and uh, see to it that more and more really catechized Catholics enter public life. So with, with all of that being said, for Catholics, particularly laity, who are wrestling with what to do in, in the current political moment in the United States and wrestling with ongoing debates around what the legacy will be of the influence on public policy under the Trump administration and the type of alignment that we may have seen or may not have seen with some signature actions from the Trump administration. What are your general thoughts on that? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of Supreme Court uh, appointments, the first president to address the March for Life, even things along the lines of the Ave Maria being sung at the Republican convention at the White House, statements commemorating the martyrdom of saints like Thomas Beckett. Many Catholics in the United States, it seems, saw those actions on the part of the Trump administration and took a lot of encouragement from them. Now that Mr. Trump is no longer in office and there is a professed Catholic in the White House, how, how do we interpret the actions of the past administration? How do you interpret them and how do they guide us for how we engage and what we should expect uh, under the next administration. 
Well, the first thing I, I would say, Patrick, is that Catholics should stop looking for affirmation and validation from politicians. I mean, that's just self-demeaning. We don't need presidents, vice presidents, senators, representatives, governors to tell us we're good little boys and girls or that they agree with us. We ought to know the truth and be comfortable uh, within that. Uh, secondly, there were a number of things that the Trump administration did uh, that Catholics, uh, serious Catholics can celebrate, uh, including those Supreme uh, Court appointments. But let's be clear that that did not happen because of effective, intense Catholic lobbying pressure. That, that happened as everything happened in the Trump administration in a transactional way. The president had, uh, President Trump had promised during the 2016 campaign to appoint a certain uh, judges of a certain cast of mind to the Supreme Court. He followed through on that promise. That was a transactional promise. I don't think singing the Ave Maria at a faux political convention expresses anything except another transactional political moment, you know, a bid for, for votes. And those who seem to take some comfort from that, I think really need to, to think again about a man who did things that I certainly approved of, but who between Election Day and Inauguration Day last year and early this year conducted a disinformation campaign from the White House aimed at delegitimizing a legitimate election. That's very bad business. And it was another transactional moment. There's not a lot of principle going on here. Now, it may be that President Trump a longtime supporter of Planned Parenthood in his pre-political days, has had a genuine conversion on the life issues. That'd be great. That would, that would be great. I'm glad he addressed the March for Life. But the March for Life was huge before the President of the United States uh, addressed it in person. And it will continue to be huge even when the President of the United States, a Catholic, uh, ignores it. We need to stop looking for validation in the wrong places. When we are asked to give an account of our lives as missionary disciples, we're not going to be asked that by a political figure. We're going to be asked that by the Lord Jesus when we meet him. And that's that's the questioning that, that we need to be preparing ourselves for, for here and now. It is always a bad idea for the church or for individual Catholics to put their trust in princes, whether those princes are elected democratic, small d public officials or hereditary monarchs. Uh, that is not where we repose our trust, and that's not where we get our affirmation. We're here to call those men and women who lead us politically to conversion, and if they hear that call, that's great. 
but the credit then goes uh, to the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit who have been working through us. I think that line from the Psalms and your last point about making an account of our lives and preparing that as a central focus, I think that's a really good segue into the last line of questioning that we have for you in our time today regarding your new book, Not Forgotten, Elegies for and Reminiscences of, a diverse cast of characters, most of them admirable. I was struck, among other things, reading your recounts of these remarkable individuals' lives, when it came to statesmen that you featured from the United States who professed the Catholic faith, a lot of them were Democrats. Lindy Boggs, Daniel Patrick Monaghan, Sergeant Shriver, Henry Jackson. I'm just curious, with a Democrat in the White House who professes the Catholic faith and this collection of figures that you've profiled, what do you want us to read into that and what do you want us to take away from those, uh, from those remarkable lives? Well, Patrick, if, if there was a seismometer in Everett, Washington, uh, when you said that Scoop Jackson was a Catholic, uh, his body would be, his Norwegian, Swedish, his Norwegian I knew there was going to be one slip there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, persona would be spinning in his grave. What it, what it means is that there was a time when serious Catholics could be in the Democratic Party. Now, Pat Moynihan, as I indicated, was a great disappointment on the life issues until the very end of his career. Uh, Sergeant Shriver was a genuine pro-lifer uh, throughout his life, um, although, as I indicate in that piece, I, I think he might have even made a larger contribution if he had uh, either successfully converted his brother-in-law, Ted Kennedy, to the pro-life cause, or having failed to done so, do so, say, you know, the, the Democratic Party just has no place for people like me. So it's, it's almost an accident that these admirable people were of one political party or another. I mean, I've worked with Republicans and Democrats throughout my public life. What I hope people get from this book, uh, this new book, uh, Patrick, is encouragement. There are a lot of admirable people in the world. Uh, there are a lot of people who lived vocationally. There were public officials who did not regard politics as performance art, but as a way to accomplish the common good. And if, if I can encourage people in this somewhat dark moment to remember some of those great figures whom I had the privilege of knowing and in many cases working with, then uh, this new book will be a contribution to lifting up the hearts and getting on with the business of being missionary disciples, getting on with evangelical Catholicism. Well, George, I, I think that is a wonderful point of uh, conclusion and wrap-up for our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, for walking us through uh, a revisitation of evangelical Catholicism in our current time and, and applying it to the current moment. Appreciate all of your insights, and thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Patrick. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Crown and Crozier. If you haven't already done so, please head over to your favorite podcast player and hit subscribe. Also, we'd love for you to give us a rating. This helps us reach more listeners. If you enjoyed the episode, perhaps you consider supporting us with a donation. You can visit our website, crownandcrozier.com, and just click the little heart or the link in the show notes. Looking forward to having you with us again soon. 
as we continue to explore all things church, state, and faithful citizenship.